1: Star Talk begins right now. Chuck, always good to have you as my co-host. There, thanks for being All, here. Always good to be
2: here, man.
1: And we're going to talk about uh, the, the the neuroscience of learning. And neither you nor I have any such expertise, so we, we we got to go to our go-to person in this, Dr. Heather Berlin. Heather, welcome back to Star thanks. Talk.
3: It's always a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Yeah, and this is start Talk at the Science Is Cool virtual unconference, and uh, who knows how many countries are represented here. And I'm I'm delighted. It's a reminder that it is one world, and education is a thing that we all care about,
2: and so uh, educate at least most-, <laughs> most of us care about. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm. It's a little hi- hyperbolic uh, to say we all care. <laughs> Let's remember, we are, we are beaming out from America. <laughs> but we have teachers
1: care, and teachers are the primary audience here. So for sure, That's right. we got 100% That's of them, uh, of those who care. Uh, and Heather, let me just finish your, 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 your bio here. So you're a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in yes. New York. Yes, is indeed. That, did that's, I get that right?
3: That's all it is. That's it. Uh, that's
1: me in a nutshell. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's all. That's all it is. That's it. That's all. <laughs> all right. So, Heather, let me just start off um, by saying, uh, when we learn something new, what happens in our brains to either learn it first, you know, to 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 climb the wall or the barrier to learn it and then to retain it? What change happens in our brain for that to take place?
3: So learning is actually a physical change in the brain. And the best way to remember this is there's a saying we have in neuroscience, cells that fire together, wire together.
2: (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Look at that. Look at the brain going on. The brain is just having
1: happy hours and just...
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But, you know, that's what it is. So once you sort of, you make a connection the more you rehearse it, that's what studying is about. The more you go over something over and over again, you're actually teaching these neurons to fire together and then they regrow, they grow new receptors so that the next time it's stimulated, it's easier to uh, make that connection. So you're actually developing new neural pathways that are firing quicker in your brain. That's what learning is.
1: But some people will remember something forever upon learning it once and others have to be keep being reminded of it. So what's the difference there? is
2: it it's a brain cell really? stupid yeah. I believe the difference is one of them is stupid. <laughs> <Chuck>. <laughs> <laughs> see, Neil, there's there's smart people and then there's not so smart people. Okay,
1: Chuck, you were reminding us why we have an actual neuroscientist on the show to give us
2: to tell us what what
1: actually what's really going on. Okay.
3: Well, I mean, okay. There are the very, very rare people that have, you know, what what they say is like a, a you know, they can see something immediately remember it. But for the average person that can happen usually when it's tied to something either personally significant to them um, or when they learn it, it's involved with um, a lot of emotions or being stimulated at that time. Because emotions tag memories. And if you think about it, what is learning? Learning is really forming a memory, right? Learning is, is intimately linked to memory. And so emotions tag memories as important. So we call those flashbulb memories. So We'll remember, you know. Wait, wait, uh, we Heather. No one 9/11. knows
1: what a flash bulb is. No one under thirty. So please tell us what a flash okay. bulb is.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, there are these old-fashioned. Cameras. Thank you,
2: <laughs> thank you. Good evening, Mister and Missus America, <clears throat> and all the ships at sea. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: ever met, and you see them in these, you know, period pieces um, where they would flash a light bulb really quickly, and the light bulbs actually would then go out because it was so bright. And that's timed timed with the the photograph they're
1: they're taking. So the, 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 the instant, the flash occurs, the exposure in the camera opens up so that the scene is lit up for the film because the film was not sensitive enough to light Mm. to just use ambient light and you needed the flash. Okay. So there we go.
3: There you go. So, but it's this idea of taking a very momentary imprint and that it just kind of stays permanently and usually, when there's an emotion involved that tells the brain, hey, this is something pretty important, you should remember it. Um, so, when you're that's experiential, but when you're learning, if things are tied to emotion, if they're personally significant, they sort of get ingrained into your neural network in a different kind of way. And that's why they say to learn things better, you should tag them to things that you already know.
1: So, wait a minute. So, on, on Star Talk, um, we have Chuck, who is occasionally funny. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes. <laughs> kind of like an eclipse. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm funny like an eclipse.
1: Uh, rarely. No, no. Chuck, we have Chuck because our intuitions tell us that if you laugh while you're learning, that's an important associated emotion, the, the joy that gets attached to this bit of knowledge that you just acquired. And we tell ourselves, but you can affirm this or deny it, that that enhances people's not only appreciation for what they've learned, but the longevity of of, uh, its duration in your head thereafter.
3: Well, the thing about humor is that it activates um, the reward system in the brain and releases this neurochemical dopamine. And dopamine actually enhances both your motivation and long-term memory. So. As long as you can activate, it has to be the right kind of humor, though. Studies show that if it's inappropriate humor or maybe just not that funny... It doesn't work as well for learning. Oh. but Why, 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 why you
2: got to do me like that?
3: <laughs> I, mean, I, was feeling, I was feeling so good. I'm like, Chuck
2: Nice is part of the dopaminergic system. <laughs> what is going on? Oh, this is great. And then you're like, got to qualify it like, oh, but it's got to be the right, the right kind
3: of
2: humor. <laughs> Not just any old Chuck it's style humor.
3: humor. You can't just... <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, so, but in a sense, if you can, if you can um stimulate those neurochemicals in the brain, people remember better. Also, humor tends to tie things to, to imagery, to stories. And again, you're activating the larger neural network. And instead of just learning rote facts, you have a context in which you can embed that information and then you'll remember. It Is better. this
1: similar to when people say the smell immediately brought back an entire uh, graphic memory of some trip they took? That smell being a sort of a sensory uh, feeder to your capacity to remember.
3: Absolutely, I mean, smells are—it's one of our primary senses because it's the only sense actually that goes straight to the cortex. The other senses go through something called the thalamus, which is like a relay station in the brain, and then it sends it to the cortex. I didn't know that. But smell is is very direct. It's a very primitive, um, primary sense, and most of it is happening unconsciously.
1: So, can you? Um, what's the difference between? Learning something that's already known, and creativity in sort of creating something that no one has thought to do or
3: think before. So this is something I'm really interested in on um, creativity. So how I define it is kind of is, is making novel associations between ideas making connections that other people haven't seen before. But in order to do that, you need to first take in all of the facts, all of the information. So if you look at someone, say, like Darwin's theory of evolution, he had to take in all the information, did all the research, and then based on that basic information or data, came up with a new way to connect it all in this kind of theory that, well, maybe Lamarck, but other people didn't think of before in in that way. Right, And so that, I think, is creativity, is coming up with novel ideas based on what everybody else knows, but no one thought of before. And by the way, usually when somebody comes up with it, everyone goes, oh, yeah, of course, that's so obvious, but yet nobody else thought of so it. So
1: this is a, a common definition of genius, where they say a genius is the person that sees what everyone else has seen, but thinks what no one else has thought. And so that's an interesting way but then if that's the source of our creativity that argues for learning as much as you can so that you have the so at least you have the capacity reference point to 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 connect reference points. to restitch it together because without it you got you've got no foundations for being a genius. is that a fair way to put it?
3: Absolutely. I think all sort of geniuses or when they say they have these flashes of insight you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. They've actually put in the work. They've put in the time. They've collected all the information. And then usually most of what happens is happening unconsciously outside of awareness, which is why sleep is very important for coming up with new ideas because the brain is consolidating the information. But you have to put in the work, take in the inf- information, let your brain mull it over and then come up with these great Can insights. I tell
1: a quick story? When I was in college um, uh, and I, I, well, in, in calculus- all right. Uh, probably most kids out there who are listening haven't had calculus yet, but you will if you <laughs> or you should. Calculus is a, is a brilliant branch of mathematics, very advanced. But there's a rule in calculus called L'Hopital's rule. L'Hopital, and it, it's almost spelled like hospital, but it's L'Hopital. L'Hopital's rule, and it is invoked in calculus. It's a very simple rule. It's it's deceptively simple. And I'd never heard of this guy, L'Hopital, before, all right? And I'm in the depths of my college's library, the math library. And then I'm just, you know, meandering, and I come upon a shelf. And the shelf must have been two meters wide, and it was the collected works of (laughs) L'Hopital. And I thought to myself, I don't know any of the rest of this work, but I know this one simple rule— that applies to all of what we do in calculus. So then I thought to myself, did it really take that much life's investment in thinking about this problem to come up with the, one of the simplest rules that calculus knows?
3: Hmm. I mean, I think the answer is yes, right? Um, but you know, even if you want to explain something in the simplest way, um, usually that's the hardest part right. to do, right? The easiest part, in a sense, is collecting all the information, being able to simplify it and unify it. Under that's a whole one other thing. That's it's
1: another another.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Sleep. Grocery shopping. Themselves. Just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add
0: Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship from a ride on bolt Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges. And take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags. Be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama.
2: Is there anything that you can do, mechanisms that you can use for these for the teachers that are listening to rules of simplification like that make learning easier? What 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 you just said about making things, culling it down to where it's something that's so digestible? Are there any rules that make our brains receive information more easy? Mm.
3: I would say yes, but maybe in a slightly different way. I think. So I was talking about dopamine and how dopamine is motivating, right? And one thing that we know is that curiosity activates these reward networks. And if you could motivate kids to just get them curious about Uh. the topic or the information, that will drive them. Like, why did Neil go and start looking through the books in the library? Like, he was motivated by something. Maybe he was curious. And that's what drives, you want the uh, motivation to be coming internally to learn, not oh,
1: you need to learn this. Yeah, with you know, with yeah, or, or, or else, or, or, or yeah. else, right? Right. But, but so so we that want t- tr-
3: that drive to come into that, that yeah.
1: dovetails beautifully with I think an, an important question here, especially for this conference. Um, what do we know about all that's been said about different types of learners? Right. There are people who need to experience it to learn it, or to read it, or to. Uh, what What is known about this? Because there's so much written, and but, but what does a neuroscientist say?
3: Well, you know, this is a, a, actually a myth that's been perpetrated for many years and, and it's very hard to break. So although there are different um, types of, you know, this idea of different intelligences, some people are more, you know, visual and or auditory or they have more kinesthetic ability.
1: Kinesthetic would be that does the, uh, movement oh, or physical body engagement.
3: Yeah. Hence my yeah. K- kinesthetic. Okay. My ex- kinesthetic. Um Yes, there are individual differences in terms of those abilities. However, when you do a meta-analysis, which is basically looking across a whole group of many studies and seeing what the kind of final um, results are, teaching styles did not make a difference and did not, in terms of trying to tailor a teaching style to a specific ability, didn't change how the students learned. So the idea that, Tailoring a teaching method toward a student's particular abilities isn't necessarily going to make them learn the information better, uh, which is interesting. However, there are certain individual differences that do matter. Some people are better learning independently. They want to be kind of left alone. Just give me the, you know, the books and I'll do it on my own. Others need a more structured Uh, Approach, and they need more scaffolding or help along the way. So those different learning styles, yes, but not the ones that, in that kind of traditional sense of like, oh, he's a visual learner, she's an auditory. But wait, but I, but Um, wait,
1: but wait. When I think of science museums, uh, some of them are very focused on sort of kinetic exhibits, where they're levers and buttons, and and you, you sort of set the class loose. Into the exhibit floor, and there they go. And you know, if that's a different experience than setting them loose in a room of books, okay? <laughs> I, I'm thinking if I'm gonna learn something, I'm gonna go to the museum floor first, and that might excite me. And maybe later I'll open a book. But uh, to, to, so I'm, I, it doesn't ring true what you're saying.
2: It sounds to me like they are the connective tissue of the learning process. Like what Neil is talking about is what leads to the curiosity that you were talking about that creates this internal drive to learn. So you start off pulling levers and pushing buttons. But what that does is it incites you internally so that when you're in the room of books, you now want okay, to Okay, I'm, I'm with that. I'll more. go with that. Heather, what do you think of that?
3: Yeah. So what I was going to say is different than the idea of different learning styles, I think across the board, having experiential learning is always best. If you can do something hands-on and get somebody involved in a real-world scenario, situation, tie the information. You know that often kids say, oh, what does this have to do with the real world? You know, why do I have to learn this calculus nonsense, right? But if you have a real-world problem, whether it's hands-on or trying to figure something out that you're dealing with in your everyday life, that opens up, like Chuck said, the doors of curiosity. Right, but,
1: but then to and Chuck's point, we're, what we're really saying, and I remember I work in a museum, so I, I think about this a lot, and I've and I and I don't always embrace the concept in every exhibit, or at least the intent. So I, not to get into the weeds here, but. There are many exhibits where, you know, they are official educators, and they're there, and they're analyzing it. And they say, well, what is the principle of this exhibit, and what's, what idea do you want to convey? And, and then they test the person before and after the exhibit to see what they've learned. And I'm saying, people, they're spending four minutes in front of this exhibit, whereas they spend hours and hours, days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months in your classroom. So what what burden are you putting upon the exhibit design for it to do your teaching? Maybe instead, because if you fail at that, then the exhibit's got nothing going for it. But if instead, get it to Chuck's point. If the exhibit just simply excited you, and even if you got no learned testable knowledge from it, if you say, oh my gosh, these colors are amazing. Now let me go learn more. Yes, I
3: think that that is Going to entail a restructuring of the entire education system. <laughs> 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 <yours> out there,
1: <laughs> but if, if, if instead, oh, so I'll give an example. Can I just give an example? And you were talking about emotions. All right. Again, I have a museum outlook on this, but of course, museum trips are common for schools. So, um, but you get to hear this at least firsthand. People who visited, for example, the uh, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And I said, did you go as a kid? Yeah. And I'll say, what was your favorite exhibit there? Okay? And I'll write down in advance what I already know will have been their favorite exhibit.
2: The X. <laughs> the <exit>. No. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but wait, I, I, I want to keep you in suspense just briefly. There's another museum. Okay. In Philadelphia, here in the United States. The Franklin Institute, named for Benjamin Franklin. A famous scientist who, on the side, was one of the founding fathers of the United States. I I, I say, what was your favorite exhibit there as a kid? I will write it down. And I get the right answer 100% of the time, okay? People go to the, the Exploratorium in San Francisco. And I'll say, what was your favorite exhibit I'll write it down? Every time I've done this experiment, I get the right answer. Because, all right, you know what they were? So, Museum of Science and Industry, it was the coal mine exhibit where you go into a shaft and all right, it's that at the at the at the Franklin Institute. It's the living heart. Again, the I don't know if these arts. exhibits are still there. The living hey, 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 Chuck, you are from Philadelphia.
2: And the heart is the bone! Oh, okay? You walk in, and it's like... It, you are inside in of a living and heart! And they've got
1: the speakers, and you feel the pumping, okay? And it, yeah. it's exploratorium, a whole room of exhibits, but I know which one people remembered. It's the one where they create a tornado that's the size of the yeah. room, okay? And in each one of those cases, you're not coming away saying... I now know the, the thermodynamics and the, and the fluid mechanics of a tornado. No, but you want to know about tornadoes, all right? And the same with the coal mine, and the same with the heart. So these are things that are, that are bigger than you are, all right? Is and, it
2: true they had to shut down the coal mine exhibit because little kids kept getting black lungs? I don't, I don't
1: know. Again, I'm, these are old memories, and I haven't checked on them lately. But, Heather, I'm just putting in your lap the idea that these are exhibits that I don't think... The goal was to, to give someone an exam to see what they learned after the exhibit. and and if, But they created an indelible memory in everyone who's experienced it.
3: So I think one of the reasons why is that we are all born natural scientists, right? And that is how we naturally evolved to learn and by experiencing things in the world. This whole school system was set up after the fact, right? But the way our brains work is to have experiences in the world and be naturally curious and learn from them. And we are driven by, we get like a a high, a reward by getting an answer to a question. So Neil, to be very meta here, the way you just set up that whole scenario. And then I knew the best, you know, exhibit here and here and here. And we are on (laughs) bated breath waiting for like, what's the answer? right? Right? But that is, that's what learning is. It's like, set it up, set it up. And we are natural of. Curiosity will come through. We want to have answers to questions. We find ourselves in this world around us. We're trying to make sense of it when a lot of it is chaotic. You know, when before we understood weather patterns, people were trying to find connections to try to predict when the rain was going to come and that's how we naturally experience the world from the day we're
1: born. Wait wait Chuck, you agreed with me as a native of Philadelphia that that's your most memorable Oh, theater.
3: absolutely.
2: Listen, uh, without a doubt, I mean, I uh, the, the the heart in the Franklin Institute, and the Franklin Institute was a place that I went many 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 times as a kid. And it's a shame because I know that now there are school systems that don't fund field trips oh. because they don't have the money. Ooh. Ooh. And I know that that's something that happens now throughout the nation where they have stripped this ability for schools to get in a bus and go somewhere with the kids and take them out of the classroom and put them in an immersive environment where they are stimulated on every single sense in every single way. And, and Heather, I, and
1: I read this and I was like, yes, this is true, that as adults, we remember school trips long after they have occurred. You remember school trips even when you don't even remember the name of the teacher who took you on the school trip. There's something about leaving the school environment and then absorbing an entire other world out there and then returning. This would happen if you visited a planetarium, all right? Because you can't do that necessarily in a classroom. So just to echo Chuck's point,
2: so what about this, Heather? From a neurological standpoint, experientially, can we achieve at least a close facsimile to some of this stuff with, like, um, what's that, Oculus or whatever that thing? Oh, know, oh what v- virtual reality. Well, ver- thank you,
3: virtual yeah. reality. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is,
2: uh, neurologically, are, are are we close to it?
3: Just to to make a a point, a finer point on this, there are two types of memory, and one is sort of sem- called semantic memory, which is the memory of, of knowledge of facts you know, just taking in the information. And then there's what's called episodic memory, which is you're remembering your experiences. And, you know, that's going on the trip, remembering the bus ride, remembering. And then along the way, you learn some facts, but they're tied into your experience. And those are two different memory Uh, systems. That's an important
1: thing to know if you're designing a school system. Oh my gosh. Well, well, to this point of of virtual reality, uh, just before we go to Q&A, but- We've just, we are still kind of in a pandemic year where almost all learning had to now take place through a video screen or through through a computer screen. And is that, there are people, I think, who have struggled with that. Could you comment on the difference between learning from a human being or an image of a human being, even if it's a live image, they're not there in flesh and blood, versus someone who's sitting in the room with you? Can you think about that difference? In your field?
3: Absolutely. You know, so a lot of it has to do with again how our brains evolve to communicate and so and socialize. And when we're in these kind of 2D zoom worlds, first of all, we're not making direct eye contact, right? I'm sort of looking at you in my screen, but not looking at you as I'm looking into the camera, right? So we're not communicating in that way. There's something a little off. Our brain recognizes that. We're not picking up on odors, we're not picking up on body motions, all of this information that's coming in unconsciously, is helping us learn, It's helping us pay attention, right? Because you're in that virtual world, but then I can look behind me and I'm in a whole different world over here. And there's a kind of separation between us. We're not embodied in the same space, which I think is meaningful. But that being said, I think there are ways in which there are some advantages with the virtual learning. You know, you can create um, kind of video gamification. you know, you can socialize learning in those ways. If you use it in creative ways, it could be beneficial or at least supplement. In That's a very training, important so. point,
1: Heather. what you're saying, not to put words in your mouth, but actually I am, are, aren't you you're saying that the moment we all got pushed to Zoom classes, if you did that trying to do exactly what you previously did in real life, it's bound to fail in some fundamental ways. But if instead you say, here's a different way of interacting with my students, how can I best exploit that, those tools, rather than try to mimic something that isn't this at all? Is that a fair way to say that?
3: Exactly. You know, obviously with the pandemic, it happened so quickly that there was no time to kind of recalibrate, right? But I think you know, as we can now, maybe in retrospect, and now that we have time on our hands a little bit more, we can start developing the online uh, tools that we have in better. For ways. the
1: next so pandemic.
3: <laughs> for the next <laughs> pandemic, obviously, yes. <laughs> so will be more. Of prepared. course.
1: <laughs> oh damn.
2: Hey, we'd like to acknowledge the following Patreon patrons, Steve Vera, Mike Ness, and Stephan Greenway. Thanks, guys. Great to give you a shout out. And for anybody else who would like their very own Patreon shout out, please go to patreon.com slash StarTalkRadio and support us.
1: Well, let's let's see what what Dave is going to bring to us uh, from the the greater universe of the world. Dave, come on on. There you go.
4: I am back. I, I tell you, there's too many good questions. let's dive into them. There's some really great mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm gonna there's a there's a lot of questions about dopamine, and I'm gonna rephrase it in an interesting way because we before we started uh, the little group here was having a chat about classical music. And I, I think it's well known that Beethoven composed while he was walking. Was, was that because, did the dopamine help him or was the activity or was there some connection with that?
1: Yeah, there are people who have habits that they associate with creative moments. That's a, if, you, if you generalize that inquiry, that's an interesting question.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think with exercise, number one, you're getting more blood to the brain. You know, you're getting more oxygen to the brain. So it always helps with cognition and thinking. But the other thing with, let's say, going for a walk, getting outside.
1: No one ever really did anything great <laughs> locked in a closet. Is that what you're saying? <laughs>
3: Starved okay. of oxygen. That's um, not. <laughs> yes, that's not the best place okay. to come up with your creative ideas. Mm-hmm. However, um, what, what I think is really um, important is that when you go out for a walk or go do something physical in a way you're shutting off a certain networking, but you're kind of not thinking you're letting your mind go. You're letting it kind of be free and unconstrained, right? When you're kind of thinking about trying to memorize something or taking information, you're having that very um, convergent thinking you're limited, but when you kind of let go and let your mind go, that's when, again, these novel associations between ideas can Um, come and the inspiration. mm -hmm. And the thought. So sometimes just literally getting out there and being physical forces you to not think. Like when you have writer's block or you're stuck, get up, go for a walk, go play tennis, go mountain climbing. And you might, it might unblock you in that way. And so I think a lot of these great philosophers and musicians and creative people would go for, Nietzsche would go for walks all the time and he would come up with his ideas as well. So I think there is something to that. Excellent.
4: Dave, what else you got? Yeah, there's a really good related question. This is from... Uh, Wilder Pirtle and he's asking but from where that, where are
1: these I, these are, I want to hear the world where, here where he's from?
4: I don't know where he's from oh, okay. Wilder, where are you from <laughs> um, let's see if we find the chat but um, so there is this model Model. he calls it ABK. I've seen VARC where it's visual auditory uh, reading writing and kinesthetic but he's saying that well does maybe the different styles just mix it up and make the learning more interesting and that's what we're we're seeing
2: mm.
1: Mm. So it cuts the monotony of whatever else you'd be doing.
4: Yeah, so today we'll do visual, then later we're going to do auditory, and then later we're going to do hands-on. What do you think of that, Heather?
3: I like that a lot because I think it has more to do with um, the novelty. So the thing with dopamine that gets it going is change, novelty, and that keeps – so if somebody's just droning on that classic, like, Bueller –
1: we, oh, you know yeah, that. from you guys Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right? From
3: Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's this really drone, like, boring teacher. And he's like, Bueller, Bueller. And it's just mundane. But that's not a great way to learn. But the changing it up, different activities. You know, today we're going to do this. Tomorrow we're doing something else. Keeps it fresh. Keeps it exciting. And by
1: the way, that actor was a former, actual former speechwriter for Richard Nixon, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, well,
3: no,
2: no. Ben, <laughs> his, his name is Ben, ben Stein. Stein
1: Ben Stein he's actually yep. an entertaining comedian um, yeah,
2: um, mm. can I can I ask you this from Cynthia well, oh Chuck is know, checking out Cynthia. the questions too oh my god yeah go for it Chuck go oh, for it go ben. for it Chuck We're
3: changing it up
2: how good is IQ at predicting your intelligence can a medium IQ provided it works hard do the same thing as somebody with a 140 plus? plus first of all is IQ a real thing?
3: So oh, n- not really. So, so, you know, IQ, what we do when I measure somebody's um, abilities, we're looking at different cognitive abilities. So somebody might be really good in sort of visual spatial processing. Some may be, might be good at, at, at uh, memory, um, at verbal abilities. There are all these different kinds of abilities. Everybody has a different, what we call a neurocognitive profile, like a thumbprint. Right, different areas of special better abilities than others, and then this IQ score is like taking all of these different abilities and trying to average it all together into this one sort of number, which I find is doesn't is not very meaningful, right? Unless it's at the extremes. So you know when you have somebody who has um, severe mental disability and they're you know three or standard deviations below the norm then, you know, that is a good indicator that they might need special help or, or whatever it may be. And then, again, if you have, say, three standard deviations above the norm, these people are, are going to need maybe more enriched um, teaching programs, right? Because their brains are working a little bit differently. So I think it's okay for, like, a kind of indicator at the extremes. But other than that, you know, the difference between a, a 115 IQ and a 120 or what, one, you know, it does it's kind of meaningless. So I take it with a grain of
1: salt. Uh, can I add to that, Heather? Because I've, I've done a fair amount of thinking on this topic not from a neuroscientist perspective but just as a person who enjoys academics and learning and
2: in other words uh, i'm not sure if you've noticed but i'm i'm kind of smart <laughs> <laughs> somebody who enjoys <laughs> learning yeah okay, i've never looked at this from a neuroscientist standpoint but you know speaking as one of the world's most foremost science educators no, so-,
1: no, so here's my point i have this is This is a true fact. I've never had an IQ test in my life. I attended public schools in New York City my whole life. They do not administer IQ tests in public schools the way they often do in private schools. And I thought about it and I said, I'm glad I don't know my IQ score. Because if it were low and I knew that early on, what would that have done to my ambitions? What would, what would I have said? Oh, you know, I really like the universe. No, but my IQ says I'll never do it, so I'll take up something else. And then I thought, suppose it's really high. And then I said, yeah, I couldn't do anything. And then, like, how well, How would that, what would that do to my relationship to other people and my attitudes towards them? And my, that would, I, it would turn me into a, you know, into an obnoxious, and, and I, so I just worried what force it would have on who and what I would become. So I said, I don't care. I don't care. I will be where my ambitions take me. And I can tell you this, that IQ does not code for ambition. And for me, ambition is what drives this world.
2: And I can also tell you this. Only smart people say they don't care what their IQ is. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I just didn't want any
1: person, place, thing, or number to get between me and what I wanted to become in life. That's all I'm saying. And you know that people who have whatever challenges they do, they can have ambitions that can get them much farther than anyone would have said they would would have gone. And let me tell this, just while we're here, I might have said this. Have we done this five times already, Dave, or something? Let me just, I'm if I said it before, I'm saying it again. All right? In my K through 12, kindergarten through high school, in all the teachers I've ever had, None of them would have pointed to me in their class and say, hey, he'll go far. Watch for him. He's going to, none of them, none of them. Meanwhile, I've known since I was nine years old that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. But none of them had these cues. None of them saw my ambitions. They didn't know I was head of an astronomy club that I just created or that I bought a telescope by walking other people's dogs and using that to then create a whole world that wasn't showing up in the teacher's classroom. And that's who I was. And I knew I was that. So, I'm not gonna let the, the teacher or the, and because and, and, you got me started here. <laughs>
2: Sorry. <laughs> I'm just, okay.
1: And and, 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 I was gonna tweet this, but I said, no, it'd be too controversial. I won't, but I would tell you here and now, okay? For every student who does not get an A on an exam, there's a teacher telling them what they should not be when they grow up. And I, and I object. Woo! I object to that mode of interaction between a system that's trying to educate you and a person who's trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up.
2: Okay, but isn't there a balance there, Neil? Let's be for real, because on the one hand, you don't want to discourage anyone from being there or realizing their true potential in life. But on the other hand, there are people who create unrealistic Uh, desires and expectations for children by not telling them, uh certain things like the the mom who's just like look at you baby you can sing don't you listen to the you can sing baby you can sing you can sing and the kid is toned down with no a note if a note came up and punched it in the throat and it's ah, ah. And, oh don't you worry baby you can sing
4: so where is that balance
1: <laughs> Heather say something
4: hey, Chuck- Chuck, did your parents tell you you're funny?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you the truth, Dave. You know what my parents told me more than anything? What? Shut up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and look at me now! <laughs> All
1: right, Heather, say something here. Bail us out.
3: Uh, yeah, it's the nature-nurture kind of debate, and and I do think that there are certain, let's say, genetic predispositions that people are born with. They, there are studies that show that, for example, musical ability is one of them. Um, some people are just born like with perfect pitch and, you know, or athletic abilities. And so, like, I'm never going to be the best you know, basketball player because I'm not a certain height, let's say, perhaps. But given that, within our sort of, I think the genetics is what creates our boundaries, perhaps the limitations of, of, of how high we can go or, or low. but the motivation that you were talking about, Neil, is what pushes us to our greatest, um, to the, the height of where we can go within our genetic boundaries. And so somebody might be born with a predisposition for a huge, a high IQ, but they never do anything with it. They're not motivated. Then somebody else who might have a lower IQ on paper is so motivated. They're at the top of their scale. They're doing way better than that. Well, person.
1: that's my whole that's point. That's the, that's all I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Okay. That's
3: Right, of okay. course, but, but like to Chuck's point with the singing ability, you know, that person may be practice, 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 and they'll get as good as they can get, but they just don't have the vocal cords to get any further. But I think the people who reach the highest heights are those who have a genetic ability plus the motivation to get to those high Yeah, but I would
1: heights, say you know, for practically every field. truly successful person in life, in business and finance and politics and go to every single one of them and to a person, they will be stories in their life about people telling them that they that they won't succeed or that they should not pursue. They all have these failure stories. And so I just don't want to presume that it's a given that someone says, oh, you'll never be good at that. I'm going to use that as an excuse to be even better than you ever thought of. And that happened to my father. I, didn't I tell the story that happened to my father? He was in high school and then in gym class. And, and my father was a, a, a muscular, right? And the teacher said to him, look at Cyril Tyson. He has the body that will never be good at track because they were about to enter the track and field unit of the gym class. And my father said to himself, N- no one is going to tell me what I can't be in life. He used that as motivation to take up track. Yeah, And within five years, he was world class and had the fifth fastest time in the world in the event that he specialized in. So it's examples like that. The fact that that even exists at all as an example tells me I don't give a rat's ass about what you think my genetic limits are because my ambitions, as far as I'm concerned, transcend it all.
2: Well, it sounds to me like you're making a case for negative motivation, as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, if you're a teacher, you should tell a kid they can't do anything. Because then they will go on and achieve the highest height of everything.
3: Dave, give me some more questions. Wait, can I say one thing? I have to call out my high school guidance counselor in the context of this, who, because I was a very good student academically, but I attend occasionally cut class. I'm just saying, I was a little, you know, I cut class occasionally. So my guidance counselor said, I said, I need the college applications. At the time, there was no online. The the guidance counselor had to give them to you. And he said, don't even bother applying to college. You're never going to go anywhere anyway. And didn't give me the applications. And I had to drive to the school myself, go to their offices, get the applications physically, fill them out myself, no help from the guidance counselor. So I just want to call out my high school guidance counselor for giving me the motivation <laughs> to excel. Heather, <laughs> is
4: there something going on in your mind when you get that negative feedback that, that triggers dopamine or, you know, some reaction that makes some people, so a lot of people are like that. Yeah. Like yeah why do too. some
1: people use the negative force as a positive driver and others yeah. absorb it and then it, like, it squashes yeah. their ambitions? What's the difference there? That'd be useful yeah, that to know a, if we can that harness really that.
3: Question. Yeah. You know, that has a lot to do, a lot more to do with with self-esteem, to be mm. honest. So people who have a very high self-esteem take that criticism and say, you know, no, thank you. I'm going to show you because I, I know internally I'm better than that. I don't, you know, but if you don't have that confidence, you absorb it. And it can actually bring you down and make you less motivated. So I don't think it works well for everybody, that that, that sort of negative uh, style in that sense. Um, it, it depends on how it interacts with your self-esteem and your confidence.
2: Yeah. yeah. Can I ask a question for Cynthia Basin? I know my times tables because I recited them while I walked to the bus a half mile from school each day. Okay. Uphill both ways. <laughs> in, the and, uh, <laughs> in the snow. In the snow. However, the reason why I asked that question to her is because that's a rote learning. And then you have like my kids, they don't do that. The teachers do not give them any. It's it's been falling out of favor over the years. So, what is, what's going on there for both of those things? And what are the merits of like rote learning versus other types of learning?
3: Well, I think there's just something also with the physical activity and the rote learning. Like sometimes people pace back and forth. Um, there, there the motor cortex in the brain is is close to other areas of the brain that instantiate that that um, sort of take in that information. And so, there's something about the pace of moving and. walking. Right, so motor cortex of the brain
1: that specifically means what? Motor cortex.
3: It's the part of the brain that controls your body movement. There's like a strip of the brain um, that controls all the body Mm -hmm. movements. And it's right part of the, just in the sort of back part of the prefrontal cortex, where a lot of the the higher level learning takes place. So they're very intimately connected. And so you stimulate one part of the brain and because they're all connected, it starts to stimulate the other parts that you need to use for thinking. Um, So that's one thing. And in terms of memorization, look, I think there are, there is something to that just practicing rote memory at some level because it, it, it's teaching your brain. It's, it's sort of gearing up those connections so that you can better have a better memory in general. So I don't I'm not against rote memorization. I just don't I think that that can be a, a piece of learning but not the entire, you know, there needs to be a richer context with, for that information to be mm-hmm.
4: absorbed. Heather, there's a really good uh, related question. here. This is way in the beginning, and it was from uh, Eduardo Arujo Pradier. I hope I have that right. And he's asking you specifically, is there any study about the impact of technology and learning on the brain? And I just want to expand on that a little bit. It's like, you know how sports, technology has transformed sports in many ways. Has technology transform, transformed learning?
3: Absolutely. I mean, now, you know, in the classrooms, I mean, well, depending on the school, obviously, and what they have access to, but, you know, they're giving kids like iPads now to learn on and they're, they're using, you know, they're trying to incorporate these techniques in the classroom. Wait, Heather, let me make this more
1: controversial. There are entire educational philosophies that reject the infusion of technology into the classroom on the grounds that somehow it will disrupt what would be an authentic learning Environment. So, what would you say to these educational philosophies that are at odds with what role technology might or could play in this whole enterprise?
3: So, like anything else that sort of humans create, I think it's in how we use it. So, if we use it as a tool that is interactive with a real human, not a replacement for, because the best learning happens interactively with real humans, I think, but you can supplement it with these tools and depending on how we use it, it could be a force for good or evil, um, you know? And so, you know, the answer is kind of both, right? Depending on how it's used, it could be a detriment or it could be something that, you know, bolsters up our education. And I think we're in still in that early stage of trying to figure out what the best, how the best way to incorporate technology into the classroom. Because all things, all things
1: considered, the technology is a relatively new thing in the history of education, right? So uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it, did take one or two generations to get the bugs out.
4: Well, and education adopts technology slowly, slower than, right. you know, consumers do. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it'll take yeah, even longer, right?
2: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Pedro Silva says this, uh, kids use too much video games, and these video games can be used to teach physics, uh-huh. used with some help from kids to understand more. Wasn't an um, Angry Birds th- th- test a lot of physics knowledge, I think? Uh, Angry
1: Birds. I mean, there are some video games that use more cognitive abilities than others, I would think. Uh, right, Heather?
3: There are certain, you know, things kids can pick up from video games. There's like speed of processing speed and 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 it's paying attention to multiple things. But but I think there are even better ways to use the, the technology in that sort of gamification way. You know, like my daughter it was using this thing um, where, with coding. You know, you code this like friendly robot to go through these adventures, and so there's like motivation there to learn the coding. You know, making it fun, you're actually learning a, a skill set, but you're doing it while creating or playing this game. And I think that kind of integration of technology is is creative and can be really helpful, rather than just sitting there playing. You know, I don't know, angry. Birds but here's here's, well, let me, well, here's a definite Birds, here's but. a
1: definite consequence of the video game era, is that when I was growing up. You, to be accused of being all thumbs meant you were clumsy. Now, all thumbs <laughs> meant you were quite dexterous on, on a video game. That, you don't hear, I'm all thumbs anymore. That's just one. We got time for just a couple more questions before we finish yeah. out the hour.
4: But you, you said earlier that, you know, actually doing something, it, it helps uh, cement things in your memory uh, somehow. But also too, is, is that innate? It, you know, um, I've seen things... Like everybody knows, you put a toddler on, you know, in their high chair, and the first thing they do is they throw their Cheerios on the floor. And are they testing gravity? Are they testing Newton's law of gravitation? I mean, are they experimenting? And do we know that? Could we know that, right?
3: Yes, and you know, I'm going to recommend a book called The Scientist in the Crib by a developmental psychologist, Alison Gottmik, who which covers all this research. um, Just just that saying these things that toddlers are doing are Are experimenting and learning physics. Yes, they are learning about gravity. They're all all of it. And so, like you know, I was saying before, if you can scale that up to the adult brain now and create a new interactive. Obviously, we've picked up on a lot of the um, physics through our experience over time. And now we need to create big, you know, large exhibitions or whatever it may be that make us continue to be curious about the world around us. Is that what you mean? And explore. What do you
4: mean when you say scale up? You mean just more? Scale up in uh, terms of more. of size and impact. Well, not
3: necessarily size, but creativity. So maybe for an adult, it is um, the, the the experience is how do we figure out with all these pieces how to build this robot, you know? And you have to start to figure it out. Whereas as a kid, you're using Legos to understand. How yeah, Dave. I think
1: together. when she meant when she said scale up, she she meant at some point take the teenager out of the high chair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put them in another kind of environment. And Heather, I just want to push back mildly on you. If your if your toddler pushes the Cheerios to the floor and does not watch it fall, they're not doing a science experiment.
2: Nope. <laughs> they're just they're just saying F you. <laughs>
1: just making a mess. That's, that's okay. the
3: thing. When they throw it in your you baby, in, that's, in, that's, the that's science
1: not science. physics. That's all, not a whole other thing. <laughs>
2: that's 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 not by the way, the, the, the best the part. best joke I ever heard about uh, baby cognition was Where we were on a plane and a baby would not stop crying. It just kept crying so violently. And uh, a guy said, God, that baby must be really annoying to that mother. And then I said, No. What if that baby is crying because he knows we're on the wrong approach vector? (laughs) <laughs> and he does not have language to tell us. <laughs> That's a
1: that would be a weird sci-fi storytelling right there, <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
3: but the, I, I often think of chilt babies like a little bit they they're actually they're, they're, we do make this analogy. They're kind of like what adult brain is like on psychedelics in a way, they haven't developed the filter system. So everything is coming in, it's unstructured, and everything feels new, and interesting, and exciting. So people often describe that when they're on these psychedelics, like, whoa, look at my hands, or, you know, everything looks Different, interesting. They're trying to. Figure so that's why out.
1: adults are not intrigued by someone dangling keys in front of them. <laughs>
3: yes. Where the kid is. Like, Whoa. <laughs> and they have. Yes. Whoa, keys.
1: Well, guys, for, for,
3: it's easier to distract we, them.
1: Too. We got to land this plane to follow the analogy yeah, there. <laughs> um, yep. But Heather, it's always great to have you on Star Talk, and thanks for giving your time not only to Star Talk but for this a virtual conference for teachers. And it's always great when we know exactly who our audience is because that can fine tune all that we have to share with them. Chuck, always good to have you, dude.
2: Always
4: a pleasure.
1: Uh, And Dave, you're in the driver's seat from now on, dude.
4: You got it. Well, thank you very much. That was fascinating. We're going to continue the conversation all day, I'm sure. And I learned a lot I have a pile of notes here already. I have a, a ton of questions. We'll have to do this again.
1: And, and I have to give my official sign off, which is I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, bidding you to keep looking up.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah.